Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 29. <laughs> right? There is no 29, and uh, that, that series is complete, and I don't know what to do. So let's just sing Kumbaya and hold hands this morning. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, that was a great time we had, and it was a really weird transition this week. Um, but we're going to begin a series today uh, called Heresy. And uh, does that pique your interest a little bit? Like, what does that mean, right? Um, I got the idea for this series uh, when we were down at the Shepherds Conference, uh, which was in March. And the subject this year was the inerrancy of Scripture. And uh, each day I was blessed with these just incredible opportunities to listen to, you know, some of the church's finest um, Bible preachers and theologians and scholars and, you know, instructors just talk about Scripture and talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. And basically, the whole, it was a week long of all of these men just defending the truth. And it, it was a very, very impactful thing. It's one of those things that you go to that's really extraordinary while you're there. And you know, it's kind of like a fire hose. You're just, you know, you're just getting slammed with all of this amazing information. And then when you leave, it all starts to kind of take root and you start thinking about stuff and maybe trying to live differently and, and preach differently and all this stuff. But it was just so impactful. And one of the big takeaways for me was that um, just as a pastor, and it's a, it's a weighty thing, uh, it's my responsibility, it's the elders' responsibility of this church, but mine too, because I speak, I'm the primary preacher here, but it's our responsibility as elders to, to protect you, to protect God's people here at RHC, and I think even abroad, in a sense. You know, we all have this, we have this responsibility that's kind of broader than just this church, but in particular this church. And... Um, yeah, that's just a weighty thing, and I take it real serious. And so often I don't feel, you know, equipped to do that, to, to, um, to be helpful and to be a guardian to you guys. But, you know, I came out of that conference just, just pumped up and uh, wanting to do a series like this in-between series. You know we're going to start Ephesians on June 14th, so we'll be in that book for 10 years. Um, but this is just kind of a in-between kind of thing, but I think it's so important. So part one today, we'll basically define what heresy is and talk about several other components that have to do with it. Part two, next Sunday, we'll talk about past heresies and heretics, um, you know, guys that rose up in the church and began to do the wrong thing and how the church responded to them. And, and then part three, two Sundays from now, we'll talk about current heresies and heretics, what's happening in the church today. And uh, so I, I'm just really, really praying that it's helpful and that it's not condemning or like judgmental or, you know, any of that. Um, I'm not going into this thing believing that, that all of you, and I don't know where the rest of our church is, they must have took today off, um, 
but you know, I'm not going into this thing believing and thinking that all of you have been duped or mixed up into a bunch of heretical things. So it's not being motivated by that, but a sincere desire to protect. But anyways, I'm hoping that, that it's impactful. How many of you guys were around, uh, I think, in the middle of 2013 when we did a series on testing the spirits? Do you remember that, when we talked about signs and wonders? Yeah, I just thought that was really, really helpful, and this is kind of a similar thing. How about the need for this series? Is there a need for this series today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, A recent poll conducted by Lifeway Research for Ligonier Ministries um, concluded that most American evangelicals hold views condemned as heretical by some of the most important councils of the early church. That's, you know, they did this poll and they surveyed all of these professing American evangelicals and the hypothesis was that most Christians in America hold heretical views, things that, that are not orthodox, things that are in opposition to what the church has always held. And, you know, and, I mean, that's like the last thing we want to affirm and believe. We want to think that every Christian at every church, they've got the doctrine down, everything's cool, where their, where their poll actually shows that, that that is the farthest thing from the truth. Listen to some of LifeWay's findings, um, quoting, almost all evangelicals say they believe in the Trinity, 96%, and that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, 88% declare that. But nearly a quarter, 22%, said that God the Father is more divine than Jesus. And 9% weren't sure. Uh, I, I don't know. I think I'll check box D. You know, further, 16% say that Jesus was the first creature created by God. And while 11% say they weren't sure about that, is Jesus created or is he eternal? Well, I think he's the first one ever created. Oh, that's what you believe is a standard issue Christian. Okay. More than half, 51%, said the Holy Spirit is a force. Not a personal being. Like, may the force be with you. We're talking Star Wars action here. Literally. I mean, this is like half of the evangelicals surveyed said, he's a force. Some kind of a mystical force. 7% said they weren't sure, while only 42% affirmed that the Holy Spirit is a person. And 9% said the Holy Spirit is less divine than God the Father and Jesus. And then the same percentage answered, we're just not sure. You know, when you ask American evangelicals who the Holy Spirit is, he's a force. Is he God? Well, I, I think, but not fully God. You know, these very, very perplexing answers. Uh, human nature and salvation were other areas of confusion for respondents. Um, two out of three, 68% said that a person obtains peace with God by seeking God first. And then God responds with grace. A similar percentage, 67%, said people have the ability to turn to God on their own initiative. And that's probably the most prevailing belief in American evangelicalism is that, you know, God just kind of provided something and he just kind of hangs it out there in hopes that, you know, a bunch of sinners will respond positively to it. That is a prevailing belief in America. I mean, 67% out of all American evangelicals, that's that's as 
Ligonier Stephen Nichols referred to as, he said, disappointing. I, I say it's, yeah, I agree, but I think it's, I take it further. I think it's just frightening. The poll shows that various forms of heresy have infiltrated, have entered the church. And, you know, if you're like me, you're kind of an investigator. You, you say, well, how did that happen? How has that happened over the last century or so or century and a half? Well, I'll tell you how it happened. It happened because of bad teaching and bad teachers. That's how it happened. It happened through bad exposition, if any exposition at all. The church has become infiltrated by a multitude of cruise ship directors, gurus, life coaches, pragmatists, unqualified men. I think that's the biggest thing right there. In the majority of pulpits and in pulpit ministry in the broader church in America, you have unqualified men preaching the word every week. They just haven't been trained. You have false teachers. You have heretics. Bible exposition and sound doctrine have been replaced with fluff and fantasy. That's what you'll get the majority of the time when you visit a church. A guy will stand up there and talk about, he'll, he'll claim to be talking and preaching the Word, but he's really not preaching the Word. He's referencing it, but he's talking about a lot of other things that aren't truly helpful in the right sense. Political correctness and tolerance are the new virtues in the church. You know, modesty and purity and holiness and those things used to be the virtues of the church at one time, but today political correctness and tolerance are. Believers have been trained not to speak up or challenge what other churches do. They have been trained to accept those who say and do things in the name of Jesus despite their wacky, crazy theologies or crazy conduct. Mark 9, 38 to 40 is used to support this ideology, this way of thinking. Just quickly, Jesus and his disciples were out doing ministry, and they came across a guy who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Maybe you're familiar with this story. And the disciples tried to stop him. They tried to stop this exorcist, and Jesus basically rebuked them. He said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward, uh, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, uh, for the one who is not against us is for us. This is kind of the text, it's the, it's the, it's the foundational text that ministers use to teach their people to accept basically anything and all that's done in the name of Jesus out there or to be quiet about things that are done that are illicit and way out of sorts and heretical. Uh, because, you know, obviously Jesus, you know, we saw somebody here doing this stuff and these guys tried to stop him. Jesus said, don't stop him. They're proclaiming, he, he's doing a work in my name. He's, he's not against us, he's for us. And so therefore, you know, so now today what we take that to the farthest extreme and we welcome all who do something in the name of Jesus but, you know, the fact is that text has nothing to do with tolerating or accepting other varieties of Christianity or people who say and do things in the name of Jesus regardless of their conduct. That passage has nothing to do with that. It has to do with jealousy and envy. The disciples had failed to cast a demon out of a young boy, Mark 9, 18. There's the context. And when they came across an exorcist who was doing it successfully... 
they became filled with jealousy and envy and stopped him. That's what the text has to do with it. It's not an open door to all things done in the name of Jesus, which is how we've interpreted it in our day and age. It's not what it means. It has to do with jealousy and envy. The disciples were jealous and envious of what this guy was doing because they had failed to do that very thing. That's what the text has to do with, and yet that text is so abused today in the name of tolerance and political correctness. Believers have also been trained not to be critical of other churches because there are different varieties and flavors and styles of Christianity out there. Have you ever heard that or heard these guys talk about, well, you know, them over there on that corner, they just do things a little differently, and we're not really down with what they do over there, but that's their way of worshiping Jesus and all that, and that's perfectly okay. It's okay to have all these varieties and flavors and all that, and and, and my response to that would be then just forget about all that mumbo-jumbo in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, which says there is one body and one spirit, one Holy Spirit, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, what? One faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. Guys, there's there's one church. There there isn't, you know, we're going to do what we want to do to worship God and to, to live out the faith. There, there's just no precedence for that in Scripture anywhere. The idea of 33,000 Christian denominations is not of the truth. It's just not. You know, I'm not the biggest fan of Roman Catholicism because I think it teaches a false gospel in many ways, justification by works. That's a false gospel. But I understand the Catholic Church's concern way back when during the Reformation, they knew that, leaders knew that when the Word of God fell into the hands of just normal people, denominations would follow. They had one thing right, and that's the one thing they had right. And look at where we're at now, tracking with people instead of Scripture, making our own denominations, worshiping any way we see fit, dancing around with flags, acting like maniacs, or sometimes it's so cold like hospital floor clean worship, oh, 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 you know, you can't have any emotion. Just denominations galore, all these different things, and it's not God's intention. But we're taught there's just different varieties, there's different flavors of it, and so don't be critical of what others do out there. Don't, don't analyze what they do and then, and then try to come up with some kind of response to that. Because of this, there is no other explanation for why the majority of evangelicals in the U.S. and beyond have kept silent during the current theological holocaust. You may not be aware of this, but there is a theological holocaust taking place in our day and age. And I will say this with all sensitivity. I want to say this with all sensitivity and not in judgment. But this Holocaust is being perpetuated by the charismatic movement. It just is. And it's not all charismatics. I've got charismatic friends who are solid. But if you do the research and take a look at it, it's pretty much happening everywhere. Charismatics, again, not all, but everywhere in, 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 a, in the sense that in different circles around the globe and even in our own community, 
They are making a mockery of the Holy Spirit. They are destroying lives. And yet, the majority of evangelicals say and do nothing about it. Where is the outrage? Where is even the, even the, the loving correction where we go to our alleged brothers and say, you guys are, do you realize you're mocking the Holy Spirit with what you're doing? I'll tell you, enculturated ministry leaders have trained them not to. They have trained American evangelicals to be passive, to not say anything, to not challenge. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not loving. It's not Christian to do that. We have to accept everyone who claims Christ. There are different varieties and expressions of Christianity out there. That's kind of the main vibe in the church. All of this crazy stuff is happening, especially in Africa. Political correctness and tolerance have become so ingrained in American evangelicalism that if, and I had this thought the other day, if Jesus had cleared the temple the way that he did 2,000 years ago, if he did that today here, the first people to criticize him and condemn him would be American evangelicals. They would say, what are you doing? You have no right to enter that house of worship and disturb what they're doing there. They have the right and freedom to worship God how they want. They can do what they want. They can set up money changers and turn this place into a strip mall. They're, they're doing it in the name of Jesus. And what are you doing, sir? That would happen. I, I don't think that American evangelicals would actually recognize Jesus if he were to walk among us. And to say the things that he said, can you imagine how they would respond to Matthew 23 with the seven woes? That guy's the most insensitive, judgmental, I can't believe he's hammering those other religious leaders over there. What gives him the right to do that? Where do you think this stuff comes from? Political correctness, tolerance, these so-called virtues have entered the church, and now the church has been neutered. And it won't speak up, and it won't challenge falsity. It won't challenge heresy. It won't speak up against these things that are out there and so prevalent. The church has been lulled into passivity. And because of this, heresies and heretics abound. It is literally everywhere, guys. Flip on your TV and listen to what these men are preaching. So I think that we need this series. I think that the church as a whole needs this series. I do believe we need to be educated on this subject and equipped to defend the truth, to defend ourselves, and to defend others. I can't think of a more important subject right now in this day and age. Um, if you disagree with what I've said, it, and that's okay, but it could be because you just are unaware of what's happening out there. And it could also be because you don't really study the Word of God and, and, and you can't tell that what's happening out there is erroneous because you don't know the Word of God. You see, the more you get familiar with and you study and you know the Word of God, the more likely you are to be able to recognize these things that are happening out there. Let's get some definitions of heresy going. Like, oh, I didn't bring my water with me. I was reaching for it. Do you see that? I'm so used to doing that, but that's okay. Yeah, Jared will get it. Definitions of heresy, I have a handful of them for you, and they are all very, very similar. Merriam-Webster, heresy, a belief or opinion that does not agree 
with the official belief or opinion of a particular religion. Thanks, buddy. Dictionary.com, an opinion or doctrine at variance with the orthodox or accepted doctrine, especially of a church or religious system. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary was good. It says, an opinion or doctrine not in line with the accepted teaching of a church, the opposite of orthodoxy. Tyndale Bible Dictionary, an unorthodox and or false teaching that damages the faith of certain believers and also causes divisive factions within the church. And that's an interesting one there because, you know, if you begin to think about other churches out there and other Christians that do things differently, you you will automatically find that you are in opposition to some of the things they do. And that opposition is evidence of heresy somewhere. It's on either side. Because heresy always divides, and yet the Spirit unifies. And so when you have these variances out there, the Spirit of God is not in it with these folks that are holding these variances, although they'll claim that He is with them. How do we define a heretic? Very simply put, a heretic is a professed believer. Okay, you got to get this straight. When we think of heretics and heresies, we think of the Middle Ages and we think of stocks and, you know, guillotines. And a heretic is one who is a professed believer. It's not someone who comes, he is from the outside, but he claims to be from the inside. And so this is why heresy and heretics are so dangerous. They claim Christ. They claim to be part of the church. They are from the inside. They are not from the outside. On the outside, we just call those unbelievers because unbelievers don't have the Spirit of God and don't believe the truth. And they can affirm the truth at times with what they say, but you know, they, don't, they don't have the Spirit, and so they're just unbelievers. A heretic is one that, that belongs to that person who is on the inside of the church, one who professes to be a believer and who professes to be a believer and at the same time maintains doctrinal opinions contrary to those that are accepted and approved of by his or her church. So it's this person who attends RHC and who's a member and who we all associate with, but they've got some beliefs that are quite different in some areas from what we believe in terms of primary doctrine, and I would say even in some of the open-handed things. So it's an inside person. It's someone that you rub shoulders with and talk with and interact with and get coffee with and have lunch with. Um, when the, um, this, and I want to be sensitive when I say these things too, but you know that one of the big subjects in the church today is homosexuality and gay marriage and these things. And um, when you start talking about that subject, you will discover that people that you've been very close to for a long time oppose your maybe biblical view on that. And you will say to yourself, holy crud, I had no idea that Fred actually believes that God created for two men to be together or two women or whatever. You, 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 it, just, it just blows your mind. You know, this whole time we've been talking about Jesus and doing life and attending the same church and in the same Bible studies and all that, and then all of a sudden this subject breaks out and, and you're, you take a different view on that. You think that God has ordained that and that that the church that we've been a part of for the last 15 years is at variance with the Scripture? You see, these subjects come out to expose those who 
either affirm God's truth or are opposed to it or heretical. And I might add that if you, the official position of the church has always been right from Scripture on that issue, and God created them male and female. That's what it is. So a heretic is somebody that's on the inside, but someone who rejects some primary doctrine or something of that nature. How about heresy's origin? Where in the heck did it come from? Where did it originate? I'll tell you where it originated, from the devil. He, he was the first in history to speak heresy, which makes him basically the father of heresy. It began with the devil in the garden, right? After he planted seeds of doubt in Eve's mind with a question, Genesis 3.1, he directly contradicted God's word by telling her, here's the heretical statement, you will not certainly die if you eat that fruit that you were not supposed to eat, Genesis 3.4. The devil is the father of heresy in the same way that we might look at Martin Luther as the father of the Reformation or Robert Goddard as the father of modern rocketry. It, it began with the devil and it has continued to be perpetuated by the devil through people. But he's the one that uttered the first heresy. You know, heresy could be defined as just saying something that's in opposition to God's truth. And that's exactly what he did. God made a statement, said, if you eat this, you'll die. And he said, you won't. Heresy. So it comes from him. And, and whenever you see it, whether in your church or outside of your church at other churches, just know that the one who's orchestrating it and behind it is the devil. He is the father of lies. And he only comes to kill and to maim and to destroy and his primary, really one of his primary goals is to lie and to use heresy to, to destroy people and even to mislead and lead astray the elect if it were possible, constantly hammering us with very, you know, variance views of the truth. What is the purpose of heresy? Well, obviously it's of the devil, but it is to generate doubt. It is to generate disbelief. It is to generate disunity among the brethren. That's the purpose of heresy. It is to generate doubt, like when you hear it, oh man, I don't, yeah, I, you know what, I've been reading this in the Word of God for a while, and I think maybe you might be right, I'm not sure if this is true, and maybe may this whole gay marriage thing, I'm off on that, doubt of what God's Word says. Disbelief, you know, it kind of grows into disbelief. I no longer believe in these doctrines because of this heresy. And what happens when, when you have people in the church that now take a position that is in opposition to the truth? Those who do not take a position that's in opposition, those who support the truth, they become at variance with those who do not. And there's the disunity. Now all of a sudden there's warring tribes within the church. There's different groups, you know, or different individuals, you know, disunity is, is always the outcome. And, you know, I've had so many different, I wouldn't call them run-ins, because that sounds like you're, you know, out on the streets and all of a sudden, you know, there's an inmate that escaped and you had a run-in with this guy or you had a run-in with the law. But I've crossed paths with a lot of people who have left the church very angry and upset and even hurt to a degree. And... And they say, the church burned me, the church hurt me, the church, you know, ripped me off, it, it damaged me. 
And, and then you begin to ask questions and say, well, what happened? Well, you know, I just had a different opinion about a particular doctrine, and then they, they just hammered me. And I said, well, did they just start by hammering you? Well, no, there was correction and all that, and then it just kind of culminated, and I left because I couldn't take it anymore. And I looked that person in the eyes and said, the church did what it was supposed to do then. And you're not actually upset at the church for treating you bad. You're unwilling to repent. Do you have any idea how prevalent this is today? It's everywhere. There are people everywhere claiming to have been burned by the church. And when you get down to this, the issue, you start asking the questions, you find that they initiated it with some kind of wacky doctrine. They, they, it was responded to with resistance and saying, hey, you know, Heather, you can't, what you're saying and what you've been telling people and what you've been telling us is, is wrong. You need to, well, I'm just not going to, you know, and then it leads to that. That's what happens. Now, I'm not saying that the church hasn't jacked some people up. Probably has. But when the church actually does that in that kind of scenario, the church is actually doing what it's supposed to do. And you must keep in mind that there's always open arms to those. There's always restoration available. There should be to those who repent and, and seek the Lord. How about warnings against heretics from Scripture? Are there? Oh, my gosh. How many of you have actually read through the Old Testament? It's like every other verse, you know? I mean, it's just everywhere. There's just too many to list. You can't list them all. You can't nail them all down. I'll give you four from the New Testament. 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4, for the time is coming when people will not, will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, this is a direct warning to Timothy, the young pastor, that you need to be mindful that basically human nature does not want to hear the truth, and it'll get to the point where those who claim Christ that are heretical, they'll just end up, they'll get tired of certain people that are going to proclaim the truth, and they'll replace them with people who will say what they want to hear. Isn't that what's happening today in churches? You know, we tend to be so envious of churches that are growing that are, or that are really massive and big. And one of the things we ought to do is instead of being envious, we ought to actually investigate what's happening there. And remember, in the New Testament, the churches were small. And I think it's because they really preach the true gospel, and it's not, it's not an attractive, you got to make your church attractional. Well, just preach a different gospel, and it will be. Just tell people, scratch their ears, tickle the ivories, tell them something that they want to hear, like they're good. And that God's just got a storehouse of blessings waiting for them, irregardless of what they do or repent, you'll have a full church. I mean, seriously. To Timothy there, in Matthew 24, 3 to 5, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. False Christs will come. False teachers, heretics, those who bend, those who supplant the truth with heresy and aim to mislead people, to cause them to go in the wrong direction. That's a warning against heresy. First John 2, 18 to 19, children, I love that, children, 
It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have, they would have continued with us. What's he saying there? There were people that tracked with the church for a while, and they taught things falsely. They were Antichrist, and they ended up leaving the church, and now they're out falsely teaching others and leading others astray. Isn't that normative for our day and age? They're everywhere. Another warning there against heretics. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3, we read it earlier, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Man, I tell you what, I, I, I read that, and I've read that passage many times, and I feel like it's an accurate description of what is happening today. You know, you've got people following along the, the sensuality and these fleshly leaders and what they're preaching. And the truth is being blasphemed. The Holy Spirit is being mocked and blasphemed. And it's like it says these leaders, you know, in their greed, they exploit people. They're building for themselves a kingdom today. It's not about laying up treasure in heaven. It's about getting the money and the wealth and the status and the clothing and all of that stuff now. It's getting it now at the expense of teaching others falsely, tickling their ears and telling them what they want to hear. I've had people say to me, you know, it's, it's so sad about those who attend these really large churches, or maybe they're not so large, but they attend these churches and they're being misled by these false teachers. They're being misled by these false preachers, these heretics. I feel bad for those people you need to realize something here. If you remove those people from the context, those guys don't have a podium to stand in front of anymore. They don't have a salary. They don't have a wage. They have no way to maintain their lifestyle and their ministry. And so it, we feel bad for these people, but it's because of them that these leaders are in position. It's because of them that these guys have a megaphone to speak from, and a palace to live in. And, and so, do I feel bad for them? Do I, do I think they're duped? Yeah, I do in a sense, but I know that it's also because of them that it's happening. And you've got to realize that. You know, if you take the people out of the equation, then that guy doesn't have what he has. If you keep them in position, he stays in. If you keep them there, he stays in his position. It's because of them that that leader can continue to do what he does. And why is that? Because those people have itching ears and they appoint for themselves those who will speak what they want to hear. That's the truth, guys. That's the reality of it. And, and, and what is said about these places and these guys and these leaders and these people, you know, it's the Holy Spirit that's growing that thing and building that thing and doing that thing. It has to be because only the Holy Spirit can grow a church like that and numerically and all that. Are you kidding me? Pragmatic men can grow a church. Pragmatic meaning, you know, they just find things that work and employ those things regardless of truth. 
If I do X, Y, and Z, it causes numerical growth. And so let's do that. Forget about the truth. So don't think that because, you know, something's happening on some campus that the Holy Spirit is necessarily behind it. If you investigate, you might find that the Holy Spirit is being blasphemed and mocked in that place. It's not about the truth or the work of God. It's about men saying what other men want to hear. And those men who are hearing what they want to hear, what's being said appeals to them. They do all they can to keep that person in a position of influence and power. Well, that's what the Scripture describes there in Peter. How about identifying heretics by name? Is that cool or right? (laughs) Not in the church today. Are you kidding me? That's like the one of the seven deadlies. Oh, it is. It's almost unheard of in the church today. Well, pastors prefer to make generalizations while hoping that their congregations are able to match the heresy with the heretic. They tell little parables and little stories, and they talk about the fallacies that are out there, but they don't name names. They just hope that their people will be able to connect the dots. I've listened to guys just absolutely hammer and blast the prosperity gospel without ever identifying its proponents. And they tell their people, you know, watch out for that stuff. It's everywhere out there. It's on your TV, and it's, it's over there, and it's over there, and all that. But they don't mention names. They don't call out churches. Why? Because they think it's, either think it's wrong to name names, political correctness, or because they want to avoid backlash and criticism. Because it will come. You know, a few years ago, I posted on my Facebook page a series of critiques on Joel Osteen. You know, it was like, here's what Joel Osteen says, and here's what the Bible says, and they don't do this, they do this. And, oh my gosh, you should have seen the response. People that I had very little interaction with or even much interaction with, just, it's like they came out of the woodwork. They just exploded on my page. How dare you say this about him or, or that about him? And, you know, you, you are, you know, you're the devil and, you know, you're evil and you're trying to divide the church and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not loving and you're not gracious and you're not kind and, you know, and this, that, and the other. Man, they just blasted me. They hammered me. I was amazed and startled by how many believers rushed to his defense. Uh, they just hammered me and rebuked me. One sent me a series of corrective, you know, messages or paragraphs through messenger, personal message, you know. She commanded me to remove those posts from my page and to receive Joel Osteen as a Christian brother. I mean, she, she was just adamant. Like, Pastor Phil, you know, with all due respect, you are just so wrong on this guy. He really does love Jesus, and he, he really does have doctrine down, and he really does, you know, and, and you're just off, and you're wrong, and you're blaspheming, and you're attacking a brother, and, and all this stuff, and, and you just, and just straight told me, you need to take that stuff down off your page, you know, and I said, stop going to my page, and you'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, I don't, since when can you not put things that 
you like on your own page. It's as if I posted a yard sign, you know, and people, it's my yard. I pay the rent. You know, it's my Facebook page. I can put on there what I want. You have to take those things down. Get him out of there. He's our brother. I just told her, just, you know, hey, just, just go on another page. I mean, I'm not going to take this stuff down. I, I ended up putting a whole bunch more on there because um, I'm very, very sensitive. <laughs> Ask my wife. I'm not very sensitive. I mean, I want to be sensitive. I understand it's ignorance that was driving her, but, man, don't get on my page and tell me what I can and can't put on there. You know, if it's inappropriate or something, you know, I've had people post goofy things on there, you know. Go to this site, you know. It's like, <laughs> you know, right? You idiot, why did you put that on there, you know? But, you know, this wasn't it. This was just pictures of the happiest pastor in the world on my Facebook page, you know. Somebody said, you know, why is he always smiling everywhere he goes, you know? MacArthur said, because he's at the top of the Ponzi scheme. He's sitting on $40 million. You'd be smiling too. I would be. Everywhere I go, I'd be the Cheshire Cat. I mean, I don't know about you. Wouldn't you be thrilled? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you? But, but getting to the $40 million that way, would you be thrilled about that? <laughs> right? Yeah, I got $40 million. Yeah. Well, you know, people just, they won't tolerate it. They don't want to hear it. So is it, you know, unbiblical to identify heretics by name? Absolutely not. I don't think that we have to do it every time something arises, but I think it's necessary at times. Um, you know, in 2 Timothy 2, 15 to 18, the Apostle Paul identified two by name. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God, or the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble. Boy, there's a lot of that today. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. That's pretty gross. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. And what does he say? He says they are upsetting the faith of some. He calls them by name. He identifies their heresy. He does it. Now, don't think that I just swung the pendulum over now and everywhere you go, hey, Hymenaeus, and you know, it's not the case. It's, that's not the way it should work. But there shouldn't be any fear to not mention names when it's appropriate or when it's right to do that. You should identify a heretic by name if God wants you to do that in that time. I mean, the Apostle Paul did it. Again, why do we not do that? It's not tolerant. It's not politically correct. Uh, um, it's not wrong to identify heresies and to point those things out, but just don't tie people to it by name because that's insensitive and wrong. I, I don't know about you, but you know, I've been preaching for a while now, and, and I've found that if I generalize everything and hope that you know, people connect the dots, the, the, the information is in, the research has been done. They don't connect the dots. You actually have to tell people exactly what to do and why, and if there's someone that's hindering or causing a problem, you have to call out that person by name so they're aware of them. You can't just hope that, well, I'm just going to throw it out there. Let's, let's throw it out there. Willy Wonka, it's floating you know, above, the, above the thing, and hopefully they'll be able to connect you know, Jim over here who's teaching heresy with the heresy, and now they'll avoid him or do what they're supposed to do, and we'll get to that. You've know, you, you, you got to call him by name at times, and in 2 Timothy 4, 
14, Paul identified another one by name. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Wow. Could you imagine if you said something about that guy over there? I mean, I tell you what, he's a heretic and he has just caused us so much harm and he's been a plague to us. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm praising God for the day that the Lord will judge between us and take care of him. What? You can't say that. You can't wish that upon anyone. That's not Christian. Oh, the Apostle Paul did it. He wanted this guy to get slammed. And he says to Timothy, beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. Wow. Called him by name. Again, he opposed the gospel. But he's a heretic. Alexander went along with the, with the game for a while, and then he began to introduce his heresies and his, his, his Judaistic, you know, he was a, my wife loves it, Judaizer, that term. He taught the cross plus baptism, the cross plus circumcision or something like that. Is it unbiblical to identify heretical groups by name? No. No, 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 it's not. The Apostle Paul did this too. I'll tell you what, man, there's three strikes. You're out of here, Paul. Titus 1, 9 to 10, an elder he's speaking of, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Judaizers. So it's not unbiblical to identify heretics by name or to identify the groups they lead or mislead, however you want to look at it. It's not wrong to do that. And, and if you are told that it is, there's a good chance that whoever is saying it to you has been impacted by political correctness and tolerance and believes that, you know, because they're claim Jesus at the same time that they're doing these, introducing these destructive heresies, that they're, you know, still part of the body of Christ and they're okay. How do you deal with a heretic? Well, a few centuries ago, they used to burn them. I don't suggest doing that. They did. That's not what we do in this day and age. How do we deal with a heretic? Now, the scripture gives us three instructions in Titus 3.10. A, warn him. If, if you have someone in your congregation and you hear heresy things, they're saying things and believing things that are in opposition to the truth, to doctrine, you, the first thing you do is you warn them. You warn them. Hey, 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 hold on a second here, bud. You realize what you just said about the Trinity? Jesus is less than God? Because remember, that's a prevailing belief in American evangelicalism, Right? That's pretty common in the church today, to believe that Jesus is maybe not fully God, he's half God. Wait a minute, pal. You got your doctrine wrong on that. Let's, let's go to the scripture here. Let me help you out here. You warn them. B, you warn him again. Okay, so when you warn him the first time, if he says, no, 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 that's, that's the truth, that's what it is, and you warn him again and say, no, 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 no. No, 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 you're, you're not listening. You're not, you're not getting it. You don't understand. This is, this is orthodoxy. This is what the churches always believe as according to Scripture. So you warn him again. See, if he doesn't repent the first time, right, you warn him. If he doesn't repent the second time and turn, you warn him again. See, you reject him. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that you would actually excommunicate them, kick them out of the church? Yeah, 
They have to go. And let me tell you why. Because they will begin to divide the church. They will break unity. They will begin to teach their false things. And they will lead other believers astray. They will. And so you have to remove them. They have to be removed from the congregation. Back in Titus 1.11, Paul commanded that heretics be silenced because they were upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. I think it's interesting that he tells Titus, these guys are jacking up entire families with this heresy, with what they're saying. You know, they're, they're talking about how the resurrection has already come and there's no future resurrection. Whatever this false doctrine is, whatever this heresy is, they're disrupting entire families. They're disunifying the body of Christ. Do what you have to do to quiet them, to silence them. And I think it ultimately means you have to reject them. You have to remove them, again, with an invitation to return if they repent. Because the gospel is always about restoration. But not restoration at the expense of disunity. Never. And we are to maintain the bonds of peace as a church. And when people start holding different views and opposing, it creates dissension, disunity, and it leads to all H-E double hockey sticks breaking out. And just, it's terrible. Churches divide, and it's just horrible. As a rule of thumb, know that the truth of Christ will unify believers, John 17, 22 to 23. But heresy, by its very nature, cannot peacefully coexist with the truth. What that means is that, you know what, if you have someone that has a variant view, it's different, it's heretical, uh, if they hold that position, you're not going to be able to work that out unless they repent and, or leave. You cannot let them remain under any circumstances because heresy and truth are like oil and water, man. They don't work. There will be constant, perpetual problems in that setting if you do not remove that person. Of course, not every disagreement in the church is heresy. We must understand this. Having a different opinion is not wrong, but when the opinion is divisive, or maintained in defiance of clear biblical teaching, it becomes heresy. That's what happens. So people have varying views and understandings of things, and, you know, and that's, that's normal for us. We're fallen human beings. It's just that when we don't repent and believe the truth and turn and go in the right direction, that it just, you know, it becomes full-blown heresy, and then it divides and it brings destruction and the devil is absolutely thrilled, and the demons are partying all night long because the church exploded. They love that. The devil thrives on disunity. Our God is a God of order, and heresy, when it slams into truth, it brings just disorder. And the truth, I'll tell you, always prevails and always will because God sustains it, and he will destroy all heresy in the future. Think of the apostles. They, they, they disagreed at times. They really did. Acts 15 and Peter once had to be rebuked for divisive and legalistic behavior, Galatians 2, 11 to 14. But through an attitude of humility and submission to God, the apostles worked through their disagreements and set an example for us. They did. You remember what happened with Peter, right? He kind of started siding with the Judaizers, with the circumcision crew, and started, you know, mistreating Gentile believers because they weren't circumcised and so he started treating them like garbage and the apostle Paul called him out 
Basically, what you're doing, Peter, is just heretical. It's a false gospel. What are you doing? What did Peter do? I'm going to do what I want. I'm, I'm the head apostle. No, he submitted himself to that other apostle and to the truth and said, I'm wrong. I, I, I have now swayed from the truth and am repented and went in the right direction. He set an example for us. That's what we do. Guarding ourselves against heresy. Getting close to the end here, just so you know. Guarding ourselves against heresy. Blaise Pascal once said, the quickest way to prevent heresy is to teach all truths. And the most certain way of refuting it is to expose them all. I love that. It's like a little proverb. Teach all truths. It's like proclaim the whole counsel of God, it says in the book of Acts. And, and you know what? How you refute heresy is that you actually, expo- you actually spend time exposing the heresy and warning your people about the heresies and heretics. Man, that's the most surefire way to do it. Amen to that. One of the ways we guard against heresy at RHC is through expositional Bible teaching, preaching. When the Bible is taught in context, line by line, the risk of improper interpretation and heresy actually decreases. I'm not saying that, you know, all of a sudden the preacher becomes perfect. I'm just saying that when you understand the context, you have the right hermeneutic, you preach the word in its context, line by line, you know, you are far less likely to teach heresy. You really are. But when the Bible is taught topically without context, when verses are ripped from here and there to support some kind of idea, the risk of improper interpretation and heresies rises exponentially. Much of the heresy in the church today has come through poor hermeneutics and exegesis. It really has. It's coming right from pulpits because guys are not studying the Word and preaching the Word rightly. And when I say that, I don't toot my horn or pat myself on the back. I'm just saying there is a God way to preach the Word and there's a worldly way to do it. And when you're careful and you do things line by line in context, you're so less likely to teach heresy. But when you, we're going to talk about lust this morning, and then you start grabbing verses from all over the Bible because they have the kind of verbiage you want, and you start throwing them at that subject without any context, you're very likely going to teach something heretical, and quite honestly, something that has nothing to do with lust. And what do you see in the church today more of? Solid, line-by-line, careful, in-context exposition, or here's our next sermon series on how to have a better marriage. What do you see in the church today? One or the other. Which one do you see? One or two? So you can answer. Two! Always. Look at this guy, a little guy in the middle. He's like, he knows what's up. He's all, he's giving me a little peace sign. You see too. You hear too. When you go to a church, it's it's always, you know, it's always some kind of thing that we need to talk about. And here's a bunch of verses that that have to do with it. And then, you know, if you're like me and you're sitting in that and listening to it, you're looking at the verse going, um, sir, this has nothing to do with what you're talking about. You want to say that so badly? Well, the fact is when you teach that way, you're so much more likely to teach heretically. Guys today do not know how to study interpret, preach the word rightly, which results in an open invitation to the devil to introduce destructive heresies. That's a fact. 
give you a few practical things uh, that we can do to guard ourselves just quickly. Number one would be submit yourself to the authority of God's Word. Submission to the Scripture. This is massive. If, if you begin to see Scripture as above you, you might come to it differently. In fact, I know you will. It's like whenever you pick up God's holy word, and what a treasure and gift this is, right? You have, you have any idea how many people were killed by heretics to put this together for us? When we see this as our authority, because it's the living word of God, we're going to come to it differently. We're not going to be so quick to just rush into it and, and to treat it improperly and, and to use it to, 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 to help prove our points or to, to exalt ourselves. This is our authority. This is the authority that God has left us with, and what a gift it is. So I'd say the first thing you do is submit yourself to the authority of God's Word. That's going to change the way that you look at the Word. You're going to come to it more reverently, and you should. We should not handle this Word, you know, irreverently. Uh, secondly, study the Scriptures and become scripturally fluent. And this has got to be one of the biggest problems in the church today. MacArthur said it. We have reached an unprecedented level of biblical ignorance in the church this day and age. We just don't know the Scripture because we don't spend any time in it. We don't spend any time in the Word. We're not disciplined like past generations. We're disciplined, and they spent time with Jesus and spent time in the Word. And the more that you study God's Word, the more of it that you hold that becomes a part of you, and it's transformative in these things, but the more apt and likely you are to be able to recognize and guard against heresy because you know the truth. You're scripturally fluent. Thirdly, study biblical doctrine. Study Reformed theology. Seriously. And those guys didn't get everything right, but they got a lot of it right. They got the gospel right. Study doctrine. Become doctrinally fluent. See, when you're doctrinally fluent, when you understand the, the doctrines of the Christian faith, orthodox belief, when you hear things, you can say, no, and then you can initiate those steps. Warn, warn again, remove if you have to, with an open invitation to come back if they repent. Submit yourselves to God's Word. Study the Scriptures and become scripturally fluent Study biblical doctrine, and I put a high emphasis on the right interpretation of doctrine. Again, all the Reformers, they didn't get everything perfectly right. For crying out loud, you know, baby baptism was the golden calf of the Reformation. That was way off. But I'm, I'll tell you right now that that stream of theological and doctrinal thinking is more accurate than any other one that I've ever studied. And here's how I know it is, because the whole point is to exalt God. There's no humanism in it. It's about God is amazing, and it is. God is amazing. He's holy. He's perfect. He's righteous, and, and you are not, and you need Jesus like crazy because you're a lawbreaker, and it's much more than that, believe me, but find the right doctrinal stream to dip and swim in because I tell you what, there's a lot of bad ones out there where there's piranhas everywhere. I'll leave you with an amazing quote from the late great Puritan, Obadiah Sedgwick. Let everyone take heed, lest he be carried away with any part of this flood of heresy. Be on guard that you are not 
uh, light or proud Christians. Be on guard that you are not loose Christians. If ungodliness is in the heart, it will not be hard for error to enter the head. Take heed that you are not weak Christians. Take heed that you are not worldly, nor hypocritical, nor unstable. Let everyone strengthen his soul that he may stand and withstand and not be carried away. Those great words. And I say, may we continue to stand upon the firm foundation of God's Word together, arm in arm. And may we continue to bring the true gospel to every soul.